ours is a multicultural story. It's a Japanese family. It's a Mexican family. It's a Jewish attorney with a Catholic judge. Thurgood Marshall and Robert Carter were young attorneys at the NAACP, and they wrote legal support for Mendez versus Westminster. And oh, by the way, our family was incarcerated on a Native American Indian reservation that still holds this history and with the Japanese Americans holds annual pilgrimages to remember this. These small acts of kindness are very intentional to help one another as individuals, as neighbors, cross-culturally, across racial divides, really are important. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World, leading the conversation on ethnic studies. In this series, we explore ethnicity through race, religion, indigeneity, and cultural identity, examining how the stories of these communities are told and their histories are taught, if at all. Through art, education, scholarship, and activism, our guests fight to have their voices heard, their heritage celebrated, and their contributions to the fabric of American society recognized. In this episode, we connect with Janice Munamitsu, author of The Kindness of Color, which follows Gonzalo Mendez and his family's federal case of Mendez v. Westminster in the 1947 desegregation of California public schools. It wasn't until later in her life, when Janice met a new friend, Sylvia Mendez, that she discovered how her own family's experience of the Japanese-American incarceration in 1942 was directly connected to the Mendez family case. Here is Janice Munamitsu. Gonzalo came from Chihuahua, Mexico as a young boy, and his family were farm workers. Gonzalo also was a student in Westminster School District and did spend time at the segregated Hoover School. Um, but he and a few boys were quite smart and were not being challenged, and they were given the okay to move to 17th Street School. So he had um, a background kind of in that school district with the same things his kids were now experiencing and having to go to the segregated school when he knew that they were much more capable. So I think that was just kind of embedded in Gonzalo that, well, of course, he was able to go to the regular school uh, because he was a good student uh, with some other friends, and so should his children. So when that comes all the way back around, when he moves to Westminster to a farm, um, he probably thought, wow, this is coming full circle, you know, to redeem uh, all the years he had worked as a farm laborer and now to be the boss of a farm. And that's the word that Sylvia uses is that her father wanted to be the boss of a farm, not a farmer, but a boss of a farm. And I think it just shows his real, I mean, he was a very much an entrepreneur. I mean, they owned a very successful little restaurant, Cantina, uh, and they were in their early 30s. So I think he was a very successful businessman, very sharp. Um, and so to be the boss of a farm was a big deal to him. And then to raise his family with his sister's family, you know, in Westminster, seemed like a dream come true. So when, because of his last name and the color of his children's skin, which they were darker skinned, his children were excluded from 17th Street School. I think he really thought that if he just kept talking to the officials, you know, goes back to Westminster School, talks to the principal, goes to the Westminster School District, 
goes to the Orange County Department of Education, I really think he thought, you know, we can make this change locally. It worked for because it happened to him and his siblings, right? Yeah. It happened to him, you know, I don't know exactly how many years, but it would have had to been probably about 15 to 20, well, more than that, probably more like 20 years ago for him and thinking, okay, I proved my academics, I can move up. But that wasn't the case this time. And so very sadly, you kind of see this, this rise and fall of racism that goes on, right? I think it's also important to know that when you read more about the case, there was never any English proficiency testing done for the students in the Hoover Mexican school. The school districts would say, well, they're not proficient in English. And so they wouldn't be able to succeed in a regular school, but they didn't do any English proficiency testing to determine that. And obviously Sylvia, uh, Gonzalo and Jerome and other children uh, from the Palomino, Ramirez, Estrada and Guzman families, their children could succeed and they were proficient in English, but there was no testing done. So how could they determine that? So it was definitely based on their last name and the color of their skin that they were segregated out. So then after talking to the school board and the, the Orange County Department of Education, Department of Education uh, and getting nowhere, the, the next option was to take it to court. I mean, that's such a big decision. We weren't a very litigious uh, society back then to, you know, just to rush to court. But No, no, not at all. And I think I would say, I bet those families would say, we just wanted our kids to get to school. I don't think they saw court as their first step at all. And it shows, and I don't have a timeline for this. Um, so I'm sure in between going to all of those different uh, educational county and district officials, I'm sure Gonzalo was meeting and talking with other people and finding out, was this the case in other places? Either that or people heard about Gonzalo going to the Department of Education and they came to him and said, hey, we have a problem too. While you're at it, that's not just in Westminster, it's over here too. Um, There was a lot of conversations and Sylvia would say she just remembers her dad going to a lot of meetings Hmm. um, or having a lot of meetings at their house. So this could have been some parents from Garden Grove School District or uh, El Medina School District coming over and saying, hey, we heard you have this problem, we do too. So I don't think that they were quick to go to court. I think they were saying, hey, who else has this problem? How big is this problem? And then they find out it's pretty much countywide. Uh, So I think there was a lot of conversations that went on. And and then Gonzalo was talking one day, um, the truck driver, Henry Rivera, who probably has no idea he's part of this story, but he um, was listening to what Gonzalo was talking about this issue and said, hey, you know, I heard about in LA, there's this attorney, um, David Marcus, and he's starting to fight for these inequalities that the Mexican American community is seeing. And it wasn't just schools, it was uh, public pools that were closed to Mexicans, but only Mexicans go, could go on a certain day. And that was Monday because Monday was the day the pool was drained and cleaned. And so uh, attorney Marcus was taking these cases up and Henry happened to mention it. Hey, like this guy, you know, this Jewish 
uh, attorney who works for the Mexican consulate and speaks really good Spanish is taking up these cases. Maybe you could talk to him. So Gonzalo reaches out to Marcus, explains the case. Marcus comes out. I think he actually probably came out a couple of times, it seems. And when I say came, you know, came from LA to Orange County uh, to talk to some of these parents and really thinks, you know, wow, I think we have a case here. Then that's when I think probably Gonzalo thought, wow, maybe this man can help us. Now, whether he thought this man could help us by going to court or this man could help us by just coming with us right. to talk more. Yeah, to, to open the right door, to talk to the right person. Yeah, right. I kind of believe just knowing more about you know, that generation, I think they probably thought, oh, maybe an attorney could help us. And then the attorney says, we're taking this to court and we're not taking it to state court. We're going to federal court. They also talked to a lot of other families who were experiencing this, but, and I could totally understand why they were hesitant to, you know, they're immigrants, uh, they don't speak the language well, and they're hesitant to put their name on anything that's a lawsuit because they've come here for a livelihood. In that time, I think it was a pretty well-known issue that this was going on and that there were some families who were going to stand up against it. That's why I know um, about the courage to really say, you know, we're going to we're going to take this to court. But not just not just any court. It went to the federal court. I mean, and 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 one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really amazing. I mean, we just talk about it. Oh, yeah. 1947, you know, Judge McCormick, the federal court in L.A. ruled in favor of the families. But I think when you really think about it, it's quite remarkable that this started with a conversation at the counter of a school farm, you know, a rural farm school, Westminster 17th Street School, and ends up in LA in federal court uh, with Judge Paul McCormick in charge of the trial. Judge McCormick was really, really thorough. He doesn't decide on the case for seven months. So now we're into 1946, February 46 is when he rules in favor of the families. Um, Westminster School District then allowed the students to come back or to come in. So they integrated their school and invited the Mexican students to come. So that's what the story was for Westminster. But the other school districts, Almodino, Garden Grove, and Santa Ana, they appealed the case. And so that's when now it goes to the Circuit Court of Appeals. So in at the end of 46, in December 46, that's when the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, tries the case. And then by April, April 14th is actually the date that they announced that they uphold Judge McCormick's ruling in favor of the families. It's interesting because they do that in April of 1947. Uh, meanwhile, the California legislature is looking at this because this was a district by district ruling. Just within Orange County, you have you know several school districts, uh, much less the whole state. And they must see the writing on the wall because in January of 47, they introduced the Anderson Bill, which is the bill that leads to the desegregation of California state schools. So even before the circuit court has ruled on it. So to your knowledge, were there other segregated districts 
at that time. So throughout the state, there were other parts, uh, other school districts that that weren't a part of this case and still had segregated schools until the Anderson bill passed. Yeah, well, and just to give you a little more background on that, that is one of the key reasons why David Marcus wanted to go to federal court. The California law at that time said that it was okay for you to have segregated schools for Native Americans, Chinese, and Japanese students. So there were segregated schools throughout the state, and it was, it was um, by law okay for Native Americans, Chinese, and Japanese. It would have been easy for them to add. To just add Mexicans. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons I believe that um, David Marcus chose to go to federal court. And actually, I, I think it is one of the key reasons um, that he chooses to go to federal court so that he can kind of basically leapfrog that issue, go to federal court with this issue. And um, he also in federal court can then use the 14th Amendment of citizens unequally treated. And these children, while their parents were immigrants, these children were citizens. They were born U.S. citizens. Right. So 1947, we're we're seven years, almost a decade before Brown versus the Board of Education, which a lot of us learned in school, um, that that historic case. Um, You grew up in California. You grew up in Orange County. Did you learn about this case of Mendez versus Westminster? No, not in school. Did you know about the Anderson bill? No, neither did I. I mean, I grew up in Northern California and all of this again, it's it's as an adult that I'm, I'm learning all of this information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering why this wasn't more widely taught about. I mean, California being the first state to desegregate schools. I, I don't know why even in our state, we're not we weren't taught this. I know that things have changed and they've they've introduced it to their curriculum. Um, and we're making even more changes, which is great. Uh, but that just it, it baffles me. I get this question a lot. Like, why didn't we know this? And I had to think about it because I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not a historian, but I, I've come up with a couple of thoughts. So I'll offer those. Um, I think one of the reasons is because California passed the Anderson bill in a very quick four, six months, it was introduced in January and by June, the assembly, state assembly and Senate had passed it and Governor Earl Warren had signed it. So the next fall, the school districts in California had to desegregate their schools or integrate their schools. So they made this law for California. California says, okay, we're good. And if they had, if one of those school districts had appealed it one more time, this would have, Mendez versus Westminster would have gone to the Supreme Court in 1947. That's when you would have heard about it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's when we would have heard about it. Um, part of me says, I think most of the books I studied decades ago, I know, but um, even you're much younger than I am. And even when you studied, I think they were all published on the East Coast. Right. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have uh, we had newspapers and basic media, but I think the publishing world when I grew up was New York or Boston, maybe centered around the major universities, right? So I kind of think that 
they didn't even think about this because the issue of race was so much more of a North-South Civil War, uh, Black-White issue that they wouldn't have even imagined that California is dealing with Asians. They're dealing with Mexicans. They're dealing with, and I also think part of it had to do with agriculture. We're a very agriculture-based state. This was all about, um, and I'm just gonna say it, cheap farm labor. Mm -hmm. My grandfather came from Japan to work on a farm. Japanese were farm labor, right? And then they were able to save and hopefully eventually start either a business or or, uh, be a farmer. I want to talk a little bit about your family now. and I, and I think, you know, we, we talked about the Anderson bill and it really kind of, you know, California being the first state to desegregate schools kind of puts that that lens of the progressiveness of this state that it we come to know of California. But California wasn't always a very progressive state. And I want to talk about some legislation that definitely was racist and uh, challenging, but that led to your family being here and also uh, affected them. So let's start by talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, where the majority of the Chinese population was here in California, brought over, you know, to work on the railroads, but then were starting their lives here. I know that that Chinese Exclusion Act opened the door for more Japanese immigrants to come, which ultimately led to your grandfather coming here. It's interesting because now we say Asian American, right? But just as you noted, specifically earlier, it was Chinese or Japanese from Japan. And so the Japanese came, I mean, one of my grandfathers came very, very early. Um, But Japanese have been, I want to say it's, the second half of the 1800s were some of the earliest immigrants uh, from Japan to America. And I would say it's pretty much all farming, farming or fishing. Basically, again, there's an opportunity to come and work. Japan is an island nation. You don't have a lot of land. If you're not the eldest son, uh, you probably will not inherit the family farm. In fact, you won't inherit it. And Or if your family comes from a lower class or has less assets, um, you don't really have a future. And so that led people like my grand, both of my grandfathers to come to America. Both of them were farmers, both in Orange County, eventually. You are leaving everything to come here in hopes of a better life. And you're work, willing to work really, really hard to do that. And so that's why as the Chinese uh, came to build the railroad, I mean, they suffered a lot and they worked extremely hard and some lost their lives doing that. Um, But they, you know, essentially bet on the fact that America, living in America was going to be better. It was a way to make money. And so my grandfather, they came um, and they had the opportunity to come. But as we go down to the story, I think then this competitive nature um, comes into play and they're becomes um, a lot of discrimination and racism based on economics, where Japanese farmers now were being very prosperous and perhaps taking 
quote unquote, the better land, mm. um, which is probably not the better land, but they just worked hard and made it, well, made and it really fruitful, right? Understood the land as well, from, from what I, I gather. They understood the soil. They understood how to, you know, make this land prosperous. And, yeah, and Japanese are very, um, we are good with the soil. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Well, that, that leads to the, this next law that passed here. Um, you know, as these Japanese farmers became more and more prosperous and successful in that competition, California passed the Alien Land Law in 1913 and then repassed it in 1920 again. Uh, and it really seemed to target more of the Japanese immigrants um, even though it wasn't specifically written for one group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how, how did that, I mean, because that directly affected your family. Mm -hmm. Well, it, my grandfather was able to lease land to, farm, to be his own farmer, to have his own farm in Westminster. Um, and he leased it from a woman who was elderly. And so she... Uh, leased it to my grandfather. It was 40 acres. And um, when she died, she gave my grandfather and my father the first right of refusal to own that land. Now she did this, she would have had to known that they weren't able to own it outright. They couldn't have just gone to another farmer and bought land because my grandfather was not an American born citizen. And my father was underage. He, he wasn't an uh, adult. He was a, you know, probably 10 to 12 years old at that time. But she obviously had a good relationship. She liked my grandfather and my dad and our family. And so this was the opportunity to own this land. Knowing that my grandfather couldn't own it and seeking wise counsel um, through other friends and uh, probably most most of the advice came from their banker, Mr. Frank Monroe um, in Garden Grove, that if my dad could have an American-born guardian, then he could, the land could be under his name with a guardianship. And so they had a friend who was Hawaiian-born. He was second generation. So he was probably likely about 10 years older than my dad at the time but he could stand as a guardian for my father and my father could own that land. And so my dad was a very young landowner. <laughs> the land was in his name as the first generation citizen. The California alien land law did put limitations on land ownership, but there were workarounds and, and families found ways to, to lease or obtain land and start to thrive and uh, the Japanese community at that time started to thrive and assimilate into the Western culture and uh, educate their children. And then in December of 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed. And three months later, President Roosevelt passed Executive Order 9066. So yeah, and I think I'll just insert one other um, main major historical event that happened in the 30s was the Great Depression. Right. Right. So this was the same time frame that my grandfather had the time, the option to buy this land. But generally, 
the whole nation was suffering economically. And I think that plays into this, this who has what mentality, right? So there was a lot more pressure, I think, um, by immigrants, Japanese or Chinese, to say uh, people who had been here longer, Caucasians, were saying, wait a second, they're here and now they're owning this. Um, and I think a lot of this more competitive, um, perhaps greedy spirit comes into play because the country is in and coming out of the Great Depression into a world war. Mm -hmm. So there's some other other factors at play here. Sure, yeah. Um, but in terms of um, kind of where we're at, you know, my dad was 20 years old. He was farming. And he, you know, it's, it was pretty good. I mean, they had their own farm. They were able to buy equipment. Um, and then World War II begins with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And my dad was out in the cabbage field with his workers harvesting cabbage that morning. And a car drives by and some very vicious racial slurs were yelled out the window at him. Um, and he remembers that some, it was different. He had experienced um, name-calling, bullying, uh, because he was Japanese before, but somehow this felt different. And when they went in for lunch that day, one of the workers turned on the radio, and that's when he heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And now you look like the enemy. Even though you've never been to Japan, you only speak Japanese because that's the language your parents speak. Um, you know some of the customs, but you are definitely American. My dad went to a 17th Street school. He went to Huntington Beach High School. He played sports in high school. So um, very much an American lifestyle. But now he looks like the enemy. The uncertainty started really in December 7th because some of the families, and this would have been um, maybe not on the news for sure, but within the community, you would have heard, oh, the fishermen at Terminal Island, they were taken away. The FBI made them move in the same week. They would have been hearing this in the community, wondering, like, what's going to happen next? Then February 19th, uh, 1942, it becomes much clearer what the government has in mind. But I, I would see, as I read about this, the amount of fear that 120,000 Japanese Americans, two-thirds were American-born citizens, and likely, uh, just because of economics and such, had probably never been to Japan we're now all suspect of being the enemy and spies. So 120,000 Japanese Americans are taken to different camps, uh, which are incarceration camps, surrounded by barbed wire, leaving their farms that they have spent generations building up, leaving their, their fishing boats, their stores, leaving everything. If they're lucky, they were able to sell it, but they're selling things for pennies on the dollar or having somebody take over their land your family owned their farm and found a way to retain it during this time of incarceration so let's connect the the two stories of gonzalo mendez and uh your family so uh, my father i uh, mentioned mr frank monroe he essentially was my father's business and banking mentor. My dad would go as a child to the bank with my grandfather 
to basically translate English to Japanese and Japanese to English. And in that process, he learned a lot about banking and business, right? And Mr. Frank Monroe, I, my dad always said he was a very good friend to me, but I would say in today's vocabulary, we would say he was a really uh, lifelong mentor to my dad. So my dad, um, when they find out they have to leave, he goes to talk to uh, Mr. Monroe and say, what do you think we should do? Should we sell? Should we, I mean, I don't think he even thought maybe that leasing was an option because it, it's not, it wasn't as common then as it is now. You might rent an apartment, but a farm, you either owned it or you didn't probably. I mean, it wasn't so common. And so to lease a farm. And so Mr. Monroe, he told my dad, I think you're going to come back. Uh, I don't know when, I, but I think the war will end. So let's try, let's try to lease the farm. And this is a ready-made farm. I mean, they're leasing tractors and hand tools and wheelbarrows and the whole farmhouse with the furniture in it. Mr. Monroe um, gave my dad that idea. They didn't make a deal right away because this was really pretty quick. You know, they had to leave within less than four months of executive order 9066. And, but Mr. Monroe finds Gonzalo, who was a customer of his, and he says, Gonzalo, I know you've always wanted to be the boss of a farm. Maybe this is your chance. And so Gonzalo and Felicitas talk about it and they think about, wow, um, my sister and her kids and her husband can come down. We could all live and work there. This is going to work out great. Our kids can grow up together. And so Gonzalo says, yes. Now my dad had never met Gonzalo. I don't think he actually met him until they signed that lease document because my dad was in the camp. Right. So all of this had to happen through the barbed wire of the, the, the fence of the Poston camp. I don't know how they exactly signed the lease, but Sylvia remembers driving out to the desert with her father to take lease payments mm. um, because he wasn't sure, you know, putting it in the bank, whether my dad could access that, those funds or not. So at least several times they drove out to the desert. One of those times could have been to sign the lease. This is all built on the trust that Mr. Monroe had in Mr. Mendez. And my dad had in Mr. Monroe, and they believed that they could trust each other. Um, so that's what happened. And so they leased the farm um, off the profits of the asparagus is how Mr. Mendez paid David Marcus for the, um, the legal case and all the hours that he put into it. And um, this worked out great, um, believing that Mr. Mendez was somebody they could trust. Now the war ends horrifically, um, and your family, all the families, have to go and find out wh where where are they going to go. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, a lot of these their homes were are gone, their land is gone. Your family had land, but the Mendez family was utilizing it. Still had they were at the end of their lease at that point, but it, well, they, there were two. Um... There are two paper document leases that I have. Mm -hmm. We know that they actually moved on to the farm before the first lease uh, because Sylvia had her eighth birthday and her eighth birthday was in June <laughs> and the lease started in September. So we know there's probably some kind of gentleman's handshake on that. And Mr. Mendez, I mean, he had a lease space for his restaurant. He had, he owned a home that he had to lease. So there was other um, arrangements that had to be made. 
towards the beginning of 1945 or end of 44, beginning of 1945, they could kind of see that the war was going to end at some point. And so that final lease that we have stipulates that when the war does end and the Minamitsu family can come back to Westminster, um, they made what I call a win-win solution. Mr. Mendez at that time is still in the middle of this Mendez versus Westminster case. And when you are in a case, you're living in a city where you want your kids to go to school and this whole case is on that, you can't, you can't move from Westminster. He's got to stay in Westminster, right? Um, and a lot of it, uh, he was right in the middle of this case. Judge McCormick had not ruled yet uh, in federal court on it. So Mendez's need to stay there. Mr. Mendez has spent the profits of the farm now on the case. So he doesn't have the capital to go start a new restaurant. Somehow in this whole thing, he's decided farming is not for him and wants to go back and, and start a restaurant. It wasn't a clear cut thing that Minamitsus can come back. Mendezes could go back to what they had to do, that, especially because of the case. And so knowing that, my dad said, but Gonzalo, here's what we can do. We'll come back. We'll move into the cottages. Um, and obviously that meant that the Mexican uh, workers who were there would have somebody, they would have to find housing for them, but we'll move back into the cottages and we will work for you for, with day, for daily wages. So on my dad's tax return for 45, 46, it shows lease payment received from Gonzalo Mendez and it shows uh, hourly wages received from Gonzalo Mendez. So the owner of the farm was working for the guy who leased the farm so that the guy who leased the farm could stay in this legal case, as well as then Gonzalo took the profits from that year's farming efforts so that he could um, start his next venture. Which was another cantina, right? Mm -hmm. He had made enough friends now in the Westminster area that he thought he would open a restaurant there. And, and that's what he ended up doing. I think um, it just shows a certain level of collaboration. And when I first heard that story, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me. But people are amazed that they would figure this out. And I mean, quite honestly, that my grandfather and dad would say, hey, we'll just work for you for hourly wages. And oh, by the way, we've got other friends who have no place to go. So those other cottages, our friends are going to come and we're all going to work for you, Gonzalo. So now I think Gonzalo had a lot more uh, farm bosses <laughs> in his labor uh, crew. But well, uh especially coming out of the experience that they just were in for the the, the past almost five years that's you know it, it could have been they could have come back and said well we want our land back it could have gone you know but that that generosity that compassion uh really that that kindness as you talk about throughout the whole book really uh came out in that deal when I think, too, you have to realize they were grateful because there are a lot of Japanese who, okay, once we get out of here, where do we go? We have no place to go. And my dad and grandfather just were. They were very generous and very grateful kinds of people. And I think they didn't look so much at what they lost, even though they lost a lot. My dad would talk about how he had bought such some farm equipment and he had to sell it just to have some money because uh, who knew what was going to happen and how sad he was to lose. I'm sure that it was mostly cars and things that were more beloved, but 
they realized that we have a lot more than everyone else. We have a 40 acre farm with a, a good family who's managing it and working it. And we have cottages and it'll be for a year and we can invite our friends to come and work and start to rebuild again. Just having a place to land with some kind of income uh, gave them the start that they needed. After saying that, and after talking about what your family had gone through and the challenges that Gonzalo faced to achieve what he was able to achieve and the, the other families as, as well, what does the term American dream make you feel? How, what, what does that make you feel? And then what does the American dream look like for you? I think the American dream that my grandfather had was one of opportunity. So I, I think it's opportunity. I'm not sure it's a promise because there's so many things we have to fix, right? But I think it's still opportunity. Uh, I know a number of people, not necessarily from Japan or Asia, but from all over that they come here for, for the freedom. And while some of those freedoms have not been as well executed, maybe, <laughs> as we would uh, hoped, um, it is still a place where we have the opportunity. I think being an immigrant, the more I look at it, I, I didn't give my grandpa's enough credit for being an immigrant who would leave everything to come to a place where he knows nothing, he doesn't even know the language, and say, oh, I'm going to go live there. It's like, oh, that wouldn't be my first choice. So I think we have to really um, hold up fast to what our government, I, I mean, I think it's still, I, I read something and i've heard this several times this is a great american experiment can we do this can we have liberty and justice for all i don't think it's a promise i think it's an opportunity um, but i think we all need to see what does that look like in our daily life that we could be people to offer liberty and justice for all and i think if you read my book the thing that strikes me every time i think about it is so much sacrifice Sacrifice to show that we are truly Americans. I mean, that's what a lot of the Japanese, um, even amet, amongst so much resentment, would say, this is what our government asked us to do or forced us to do, and we wanted to prove we are solid Americans. Um, and it's a very odd concept to be put behind barbed wire to, be sh to show your loyalty, but I believe that was truly what many of them thought was best amongst some really bad, there was... They were all very bad options. So can we show our loyalty? Can we show our loyalty by fighting a war in Europe when we are the enemy at home? It, it's a very complicated, I think, story. Um, and our story is, I tell everyone, you know, our, there was 120,000 Japanese Americans, my family of about 10. <laughs> this is our story, but every single one has a different story. If you would like to continue the conversation, visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to hear all of the lectures from this series. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning and for more socially conscious content, visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.